Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 22nd, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to get right into it. I have a few things to rant about, but I'm going to hold them off until maybe next week or the week after. The, the um... White nationalists are at it again, and there's a few other things that have been thorns in my side lately, but it could wait. I don't have to um, vent all of my frustration at once. Tonight we are going to present Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, and this is part 2 of our series. This is subtitled, Persecution of the Saints. The Roman historian Suetonius, who lived from about 69 or 70 AD to about 140 AD, had a career as the director of the imperial archives under the emperor Trajan, or Trajan as it's spelled, but it should probably be Trajan. So he must have had a lot of first-hand information upon which to base his histories of the lives of the Roman emperors. In his Lives of the Twelve Caesars, Claudius, chapter 25, Suetonius says of Claudius, in brief, that since the Judeans made constant disturbances at the instigation of Christus, note the pronunciation, Christus, he expelled them from Rome. In spite of the bickering over this passage by modern Jews and other assorted scoffers, this brief note must be a reference to the same event, which is also noted in Acts chapter 18, where it is recorded that as Paul is in Corinth, he meets Priscilla and Aquila who were there on account of Claudius ordering all of the Judeans to depart from Rome. Those who doubt the connection of this reference in Suetonius to early Christianity conveniently assert that there must have been some other Christus who caused such a disturbance, among other claims. But there were certainly Christians in Rome by this time, which is evident as Paul, writing his epistle to the Romans in 57 AD, attests that many Christian assemblies were already established in Rome, and one of the major themes of that epistle is the reasons for the divisions between Christians and Jews. The mistaking of Christus, which would come from the Greek word kreo and mean the good one, for Christus, which would come from the Greek verb kreo, meaning the anointed one, or Christ. The mistaking of these two words was not uncommon among the Romans. 
Tacitus was also confused over the name in that same manner. But the error even appears in some of the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament writings. For instance, in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, and in Acts chapter 26, verse 28, both times where the word Christian or Christians appears, the Codex Sinaiticus, the 5th century manuscript, one of the, I'm sorry, 4th century manuscript, one of the oldest surviving codices, has Christians rather than Christians. Certain early and notable Christian writers made remarks attempting to correct the confusion. In the late 3rd century, the Christian writer Lactantius wrote concerning the name of Christ because, as he himself had said, the meaning of this name must be set forth on account of the error of the ignorant who, by the change of a letter, are accustomed to call him Christus. Lactantius wrote until his death about 250 AD. I'm sorry, AD. And that was from the Divine Institutes, Book 4, Chapter 7. But perhaps a hundred years earlier, Tertullian, who was writing from about 180 AD, I believe, Tertullian had written the name Christian, however, so far as its meaning goes, bears the sense of anointing. Even when, by a faulty pronunciation, you call us Christians, for you are not certain about even the sound of this noted name. Even when, by a faulty pronunciation, you call us Christians, you, in fact, lisp out the sense of pleasantness and goodness because the verb creo, from which Christians would be derived, can mean good or even excellent, which is what we're going to get at in a minute with Justin Motter. That was from Tertullian's Ad Nationes, or To the Nations, Book 1, Chapter 3. Now, at least three score years before Tertullian, in the mid-second century, the Christian apologist Justin Martyr, writing only a shortened time after Suetonius, had made a play on words relating to the error by writing, for we are accused of being Christians, and to hate what is excellent, which would be the word Christian, is unjust. And that's from the first apology of Justin, chapter 4. So the early Christian writers, three of them, knew about the confusion of Christus and Christus. The Roman historian Tacitus, in his Annals of Imperial Rome, had written in reference to rumors that Nero himself had ordered the setting of the great fire in Rome in the summer of 64 AD. And he said the following, 
Consequently, to get rid of the report, the report circulating around Rome that Nero was responsible for the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pled guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burned to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, Tacitus talking about Christians, this is how he felt about them, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. One man's cruelty, talking about Nero himself. But there are also scoffers concerning this passage, who argue that medieval scribes had changed the original manuscripts, which originally had Christus and Christians, to Christus and Christians. However, once we take into consideration the evidence which we have seen concerning the confusion of the name from Justin Martyr, from Tacitus, and from Lactantius, all early Christian writers, as well as archaeological evidence where the term Christian appears on many Greco-Roman Christian tombstones, it is clear that the medieval scribes only sought to correct Tacitus rather than corrupt him. But in fact, it also further proves our assertion concerning Suetonius, that his Christus was indeed Christ, where Tacitus had originally called Christ, according to the oldest manuscripts, by the name Christus in a reference which could not possibly be to anyone else but the Christ of the Christians. The context of Tacitus's statements, the content of the statements, and the fact that the misspelling endured for so long, all also served to prove the passage to be authentic. So what the scoffers cite to discredit 
our claims actually serves to prove our claims concerning all of these passages. All of those who doubt the historical existence of Christ are tools for the same Jews who have always hated Jesus, just as the pagan Greeks and Romans, whom the Jews had actively recruited in the first century to persecute the apostles of Christ. As for the things which Tacitus had written concerning Christians, these things which Tacitus must have heard repeated in Rome were actually corroborated in the Apology of Tertullian. There we see many of the same vicious rumors concerning Christians were still being spread by Jews a hundred years later, a hundred years after Tacitus. Tertullian was forced to address charges of incest, child sacrifice, and cannibalism made against Christians and stemming from Jews in his own time. No doubt the Jews were practicing their usual tactic of projecting upon Christians the things that they themselves had been doing. All of this is not only pertinent, but is also absolutely necessary to understand in relation to an examination of Paul's epistles, where Paul explains that he and his fellow Christians were persecuted by the Jews. We can turn to Tacitus and Suetonius, as well as to Tertullian and Minucius Felix, in order to see evidence of both the nature and extent of that persecution. While it was more severe in the time of Nero, of which Tacitus had written, we can see that it nevertheless existed in the time of Claudius, of which Suetonius had written. For where Suetonius had said that the Judeans constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus, we can understand that the Jews in Rome were persecuting Judean and Roman Christians on account of Christ at the same time that Paul was in Corinth writing this epistle. Since we see in Acts chapter 18 that Priscilla and Aquila had just come to Corinth from Rome for that very reason. Now, with this understanding, we shall commence with chapter 2 of Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, which was written in Corinth in perhaps 50 or 51 AD. And we hope to have already established the date for the writing of this epistle in the first segment of this presentation. One Thessalonians chapter two, verse one. For you yourselves know, brethren, of our reception by you, that it had not been empty, but having been mistreated before, even assaulted, just as you know, at Philippus or Philippi, we in respect of our God were emboldened to talk with you of the good message of Yahweh among or perhaps amidst much danger. 
Where the text of the Christogenian New Testament contains the words mistreated, assaulted, and danger, the King James Version has only suffered, shamefully treated, and contention. As the account in Acts chapter 16 relates, while he was at Philippi, Paul had suffered more than what the words shamefully treated seemed to infer, as he and Silas were actually beaten. The record also reveals that at Thessalonica, the situation was just as serious. Here, in this passage, Paul is recounting to the Thessalonians the same events which were recorded in Acts chapter 16. And it came to pass upon our going to prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of a python met with us who produced much business for her masters by divining. She, following after Paul and us, cried out, meaning Luke and Silas and whoever else was with Paul in Philippi. She cried out, saying, These men are servants of Yahweh the Highest, who declare to you the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. Then Paul, being quite troubled, and turning to the Spirit, said, I order you, in the name of Yahshua Christ, to depart from her. And it departed at that same moment. And her master, seeing her, because the hope of their business had departed, taking Paul and Silas, dragged them into the market before the rulers, and bringing them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men agitate our city, being Judeans, and they declare customs which are not lawful for us to receive nor to do, being Romans. And the crowd stood up against them, and the chief magistrates, tearing off their garments, commanded them to be beaten, and laying upon them many blows, they cast them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them securely, who receiving such an order, cast them into the inner cell, and secured their feet in stocks. While we are not yet in the period of the persecutions under Nero, the threats to Christians at this time, in the rule of Claudius around 50 or 51 AD, were nevertheless very real. However, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the King James Version also seems to have minimized the meaning of a phrase found at verse 26, where Paul had written of the present violence, and he advised his readers concerning virginity, that really then, I suppose that to be such is good because of the present violence, that it is well for a man to be so. And he said that because, as he said in verse 28 of that chapter, if they decided to marry, they may have anxiety in the flesh. Ostensibly, Christians attempting to start families in the days of the Roman persecutions would have suffered even greater anxiety because of the possibility that their persecution would destroy their families as well as themselves. Paul continues by discussing the legitimacy of his ministry.
And he says in verse 3, For our summons was not out of error, nor of uncleanness, nor with guile, but just as we have been approved by Yahweh to be entrusted with the good message, in this manner we speak, not as if pleasing men, but Yahweh, who is examining our hearts. Most translations seem to interpret this passage as if Paul is referring to an exhortation which he had made to the Thessalonians. We do not agree with that interpretation. The Greek word rendered summons here is paraklesis, a word with a wide range of meaning. It can be an exhortation or address or even a comfort or an encouragement as Paul uses it elsewhere in other contexts. But it is primarily a calling to one's aid, a summons, a calling upon, or even an appealing, according to Liddell and Scott. Saying our summons, or perhaps our calling, in verse 3, and referring to his being entrusted with the gospel, Paul is referring to the calling for which he himself was called, which was to bring the gospel to the nations of scattered Israel. So here Paul is expressing confidence to the Thessalonians that his own calling was indeed from God, and that is the basis for which he brought the gospel to the Thessalonians. So asserting that his calling is from God, he continues speaking of the conduct of his ministry since he has also expressed the belief that God will judge his conduct. And he says, Neither were we ever with a word of flattery, even as you know, nor with a pretense of covetousness. Yahweh is witness, nor seeking honor from men, neither from you nor from others. As Christ himself said in John chapter 5, I receive not honor from men, meaning that men should not allow themselves to be flattered. Flattery is made in deceit in an endeavor to corrupt its target, as it warns in the Proverbs, a man that flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. In another place, speaking of the righteousness which is by the law of God, it says, He that rebukes a man afterwards shall find more favor than he that flatters with the tongue. So Paul would not flatter his listeners, nor would he act covetously towards them, as he chastises the enemies of the gospel as being covetous, concerned for their own interests, where he wrote in Philippians chapter 3, For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. The implication is that the false teachers those priests who would rule over men were really doing so in the interest of their own gain. 
They also seek their own honor, as Christ admonished concerning them in the accounts of the gospel. For instance, in Matthew chapter 23, where he said that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, whatever so they bid you, observe, that observe and do. But do not you after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at feasts, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Then, in contrast, Christ warned his own disciples, But be you not called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and you are all brethren. That is precisely what Paul had taught throughout all of his epistles, where he consistently used language in words which appear in the King James Version as fellow worker and fellow helper and refuse to attempt to rule over others as he is also about to assert in verse 7 of our chapter. Ourselves having the ability to be domineering or perhaps overbearing as ambassadors of Christ, rather we were infants in your midst, as a nurse would cherish her own children. The Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text, along with later edited versions of some of the early manuscripts, have the word apioi here, which would be gentle rather than napioi which is infants, where our third century where our text follows the third century papyrus P sixty five and the original and oldest Greek codices. While gentle may seem to better fit the context, the manuscript evidence does not favor the reading. But for the phrase Dunominoi or having ability, or having power, and barai ainahi. The King James Version has, when we might have been burdensome, using the subjunctive mood and the past tense, rather than the present tense of the Greek verb. Most literally, the phrase means being able to be with weight. If Paul had used this phrase in contrast to something expressing independence, we would probably have translated it similarly to the King James Version with burdensome rather than domineering. However, in contrast to infants or even to gentleness, the sense is not independence as opposed to dependence but rather it is something of weight or severity as opposed to something gentle or innocent 
or harmless like an infant. Therefore, it is rendered as having the ability to be domineering, and overbearing would also have sufficed. But the phrase may also have been written figuratively with an expression such as being able to throw our weight around. And the King James Version translators and most others seem to have missed the point. Liddell and Scott explained that same idiomatic use of the word in their entry at Barris and Joseph Thayer at Barris, Strong's number 922, where Thayer said in part that the word means weight, that's the literal meaning, equivalent to authority, and says that en barai ainahi, the same phrase used here, means to have authority and influence. Paul exerted a similar idea in Philemon, at verses 14 and 20, where he also explained that he would not use the authority which he had in the gospel to compel anyone to act against their own will. So basically, that's what Paul is saying here. So here Paul speaks of the burden of authority, but a little further on in the chapter he will speak of his refusal to burden the Thessalonians with his own care as well. First he says in verse 8, Thus, yearning for you, we were pleased to share with you not only the good message of Yahweh, but even our own lives, because you have become beloved to us. As we noted while presenting the first chapter of this epistle, from the records of the account of Paul's visit to Thessalonica, which are found in Acts chapter 17, it is apparent that Paul was not able to remain among the Thessalonians for much longer than three weeks, if indeed he was there for that long. Luke made it a point to state that Paul had preached in their assembly for three Sabbaths, which would necessitate his having spent at least 16 days in the city. And then the Judeans who rejected the gospel began to trouble him. Upon the resulting disturbance, Paul left for Berea, or Beroea, and from there went on to Athens, and then to Corinth, from where he is writing this epistle. Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that even so, has the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So while Paul had the authority in the gospel to burden the Thessalonians in that manner, ostensibly, he chose not to use it, as he next informs them. You remember, brethren, our labor and hardship, working night and day, so as not to burden any of you, We proclaim to you the good message of Yahweh. And likewise, when Paul had arrived in Corinth, he chose to work at his trade, rather than burden any of the Corinthians, where it says in Acts chapter 18, that finding a certain Judean named Aquila, recently having come from Italy, and Priscilla his wife, he went with them. And because being in the same trade, he abode with them, and they worked, for they were tent makers by trade. 
Later, as his ministry in Corinth was quite long, he was nevertheless supported, at least in part, by the Macedonians. For reason that he did not burden the Thessalonians, nor did he seek to rule over them, nor did he seek to be honored by them, and because he had supported himself with his own labor while he was among them, Paul attests that his message to them should have all the more authority. In verse 10, You and Yahweh are witnesses how devoutly and righteously and blamelessly we have been with you who believe, exactly as you know, since each one of you, as a father to his own children, were we exhorting you and encouraging and testifying for you to walk worthily of Yahweh, who is calling you into his own kingdom and honor, where Paul here invokes God himself in his appeal. He risks being found a blasphemer if his statement is not true, which is an indication of just how seriously Paul had engaged in the task of his ministry. He never burdened the Thessalonians, but rather did his best to counsel them at the risk of nothing but his own reputation. And once again, the calling Paul speaks of is that same calling promised to the children of Israel in the words of the Old Testament prophets. Paul's mission to the nations of scattered Israel was the fulfillment of prophecies such as that which is found in Isaiah chapter 48. Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I also am the last. As Christ later says in the Revelation, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And Paul writes in, verse 13. And for this reason, we also give thanks to Yahweh incessantly, because receiving from us the word of report of Yahweh, you accept not a word of men, but just as it truly is, Yahweh's word, which also operates within you who believe. Here Paul informs his readers that the gospel of Christ, which he is bringing to the nations, is indeed the word of God, and that the gospel is a report from God, meaning the Old Testament God. Since Paul had attested in Ephesians chapter 2 that the household of God is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, to find that household, one must look for the people whom Yahweh God addressed in the prophets themselves, which are the seed or descendants of the ancient people of Israel. Likewise, Peter, writing to so-called Gentiles, to the Christian assemblies of Anatolia, which Paul had founded, wrote in chapter 3 of his second epistle, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds, by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, 
and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. In a messianic prophecy that foretells the spread of the gospel, the report of which Paul speaks here, we read in Isaiah chapter 53, Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. As we hid, as it were, our faces from him, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, our meaning the children of ancient Israel, and nobody else. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the gospel of God is the report that he took upon himself the iniquity of the children of Israel. And Paul had brought that message to those same people, which was the entire purpose of his ministry. Paul mentions here to the Thessalonians, Yahweh's word, which also operates in you, and that too was a matter of prophecy exclusive to the children of Israel, which we may find, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, where it says, And it shall come to pass, when all, they think, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, the blessings of obedience and the curses in the consequences of disobedience. The blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh thy God has driven thee, and shalt return unto Yahweh thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and all thy soul, that then Yahweh thy God will turn thy captivity, and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations, where Yahweh thy God has scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the outmost parts of heaven, from thence will Yahweh thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And Yahweh thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. And he will do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers. And Yahweh thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love Yahweh God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. So Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in letter 
sense anyone, for instance, all of those Edomites in Judea, anyone could be circumcised in the flesh. But Yahweh had promised to the children of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 31 that in concert with the promise of a new covenant, after those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is the word of Yahweh operating within us. That is the indwelling word which Christian Israel has been blessed with. And Paul continues by saying, you have become imitators, brethren, of the assemblies of Yahweh in Judea, which are among the number of Christ Yahshua, because these same things even you have suffered by your own tribesmen, likewise they also by the Judeans. Many denominational Christians pervert or plainly ignore the historical context of this verse in order to offer corrupt interpretations. In Acts chapter 17, we read in part of those who rejected the gospel in Thessalonica, and Luke wrote, Then the Judeans, being jealous, and taking certain wicked men from the markets, these are the kinsmen of the Thessalonians, taking certain wicked men from the markets, making a riot through the city into confusion, and coming upon the house of Jason, sought them to lead them before the people. Jason was one of the more prominent of those who had accepted the gospel. And not finding them, they dragged Jason and some brethren before the rulers of the city, crying, that they who have been upsetting the inhabited world are also come here, whom Jason received, and they all act against the decrees of Caesar, declaring Yahshua to be another king. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city, hearing these things. So here we see that Paul was referring to we see what Paul was referring to when he wrote that because these same things even you have suffered by your own tribesmen. While it is fully evident that the Judeans in Thessalonica had encouraged unwitting Thessalonians to harass the Christians in Thessalonica. This pattern continued as early Christian writers such as Tertullian and Minucius Felix had attested that the Jews were behind all of the persecutions of Christians by the Romans. From Tertullian's Apology, chapter 21, he says, The apostles, in obedience to their master's command, went about preaching through the world, persecuted by the Jews to the last degree, but suffering victoriously, in full assurance of the truth, but at length the infidels taking advantage of the barbarous Nero's reign, they were forced to, meaning the apostles were forced to, sow the Christian religion in their own Christian blood. 
Here we are going to read from chapter 28 of the Christian Apology set forth in a dialogue by Minucius Felix, who lived and wrote in the first half of the third century. It is titled Octavian. With this we shall see that it was indeed the Jews who persecuted Christians, and the lies that they had devised concerning them, lies which pagans such as Tacitus had accepted without suspicion, as it is evident in the citation which we have already provided from his writing concerning Christ and the persecutions of Christians by Nero. In his dialogue, Minucius Felix was arguing with a pagan from the perspective of a former pagan. It must be noted, however, that when he refers to a demon, it is not to an evil spirit of some sort, but rather he refers to a Jew. How unfair, he says, how unfair it is to pass judgment as you do. This is Minucius Felix taking one side of an argument against Octavian, the character in his dialogue. How unfair it is to pass judgment as you do, without knowledge and investigation, a guilty conscience reminds us. We too, meaning Minucius Felix, we too were once in the same case as you, blindly and stupidly sharing your ideas, and supposing that the Christians worshipped monsters, devoured instant, infants, I'm sorry, and joined in incestuous feasts. We did not understand that the demons were forever setting fables afloat without either investigation or proof, and that all the while no one came forward with evidence, though he would have gained not only the pardon for wrong done, but also reward for his disclosure, and that, so far from wrongdoing of any kind, accused Christians neither blushed nor feared, but regretted one thing only, that they had not been Christians before, in other words, a lot of people were being accused of being Christians and persecuted, although they had not really been Christians. At the time when we used to undertake the defense and protection of cases of sacrilege or incest or even murders, Felix hearkening to the time when he was a pagan, we regarded Christians as not even entitled to a hearing. Sometimes, under the pretense of pity, with savage cruelty we tortured those who confessed to make them deny in order to save their lives. In their case, we reversed the usual practice, employing torture not to elicit truth, but to compel falsehood. And if anyone, overcome by the pressure of pain, succumbed and denied his faith, we extended indulgence to him, meaning they were let off for all the crimes that they were accused of, as though forswearing the name 
for swearing the name of Christ was in itself enough to purge him of all of his misdoings, all of those false accusations that the Jews were enticing pagans and leveling themselves against the Christians. And he says, Do you recognize that what we felt and did was exactly what you feel and are doing now? Whereas, if the decision rested with reason, and not the instigation of a demon, they would rather be pressed not to disavow their Christianity, but to confess to incest and fornication, to unholy rites, and to child sacrifice. For these are the kind of tales with which these demons have stuffed the ears of the ignorant to excite horror and execration against us. Nor need we be surprised, seeing that scandal, which always feeds on the dissemination of falsehoods and withers in the light of truth, is the handiwork of demons. For false rumor is their seed plot and their nursery. Throughout his apology, written a few decades later, Tertullian also mentioned all of these tactics and accusations of the Jews against the Christians. Some of these things Christians were already suffering at the time of Paul himself. Continuing, where he then speaks of the Judeans themselves, Paul refers to them as those who killed both Prince Yahshua and the prophets, and banished us, and are not pleasing to Yahweh, and contrary to all men. The majority text, and therefore the King James Version, says that they killed their own prophets. The text of the Christogenian New Testament follows the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, Claromontanus, Frerianus, and the 6th century codex known only as 0208. It doesn't have a fancy name. It's kept in a museum in Bavaria. The variation is found, where it says their own prophets, is found in an interpolation of the Codex Claromontanus, which was esteemed to have been made in the 7th century, probably 200 years after the original manuscript was made. The variation also appears in a few manuscripts of the 9th and 10th centuries, but it is in none of the early Greek manuscripts. Therefore, Paul had never said that the Judeans who killed Christ had killed their own prophets, but only that they killed the prophets. There's a world of difference there. There are a few records in Scripture as to who... I'm sorry. There are few records in Scripture as to who killed any of the prophets of God. We just don't have them. However, Christ himself had blamed all the blood of all the prophets from Abel down to Zacharias. 
In Greek, that doesn't make much sense, but in English, that's all the prophets from A to Z. Who must have been, Zacharias must have been, the father of John the Baptist. Christ blamed all their blood on a particular race of individuals in Jerusalem who could not have been Israelites, since no Israelite properly, unless he was a, a bastard, no Israelite descended from Cain, who slew Abel, and only Cain could be held responsible for the death of Abel. However, the Edomites did, in part, descend from Cain. And the one instance where a particular individual in Scripture is named in connection with killing the priests of Yahweh, we find Doeg the Edomite, who was in the employ of Saul the king in 1 Samuel chapter 22, where it says, And the king said to Doeg, Turn now and fall upon the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned, and he fell upon the priests, and slew on that day fourscore and five persons that did wear a linen ephod. The mystery to the iniquity in Jerusalem at the time of Christ is explained by Paul in Romans chapter 9 where he said that not all those who are from Israel are those of Israel. And he went on to contrast Jacob and Esau, the vessels of mercy in Judea, to the vessels of destruction. We know from the histories of Flavius Josephus that Judea did indeed subsume a large population of Edomites and others in the closing decades of the 2nd century BC under John Hyrcanus and in the opening decades of the 1st century BC under Alexander Janius. Then, when Herod the Edomite had gotten himself into position as king, those same histories inform us that he replaced the chief men and the princes of the Judeans with his own tribesmen. Thus it was with ancient Jerusalem as well that the kings and princes had taken up with the merchants and the priests of Baal, the priests of Baal, who were the agents of the aliens, where we read in Ezekiel chapter 16, Again, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. Jeremiah described this same thing in a quite different way, where he wrote in part in Jeremiah chapter 2, Has a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And a little further on, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, 
the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. And then, a little further on, yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. The sin that cannot be washed off is race mixing, a vessel of destruction, as Paul refers to the Edomites in Romans chapter 9, is a broken cistern, a bastard that can hold no water, as Jeremiah refers to in Jeremiah chapter 2. The apostles of Christ said very much the same thing that Paul and the prophets had said, but in a more enigmatic way, where, for instance, we read in Jude, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude proceeded to relate these ungodly men, these false teachers, to fallen angels, to Cain, to Sodom, and to all of the prehistoric rebellion against God, which resulted in race mixing, homosexuality, and every other perversion. So it is, in the Christian era, and throughout our recent history, we either accept the Jew and allow him to corrupt our society and recreate Sodom and Gomorrah, or we reject the Jew and understand that persecution shall indeed result. That is the Christian trial, to love the world and follow the eternal enemies of God, or to love God and face up to the trials of persecution. Foreseeing those trials, the Apostle Peter wrote in his first epistle, Therefore, in chapter 4, with Christ suffering in the flesh, you also be equipped with the same mind, because he who suffers in the flesh ceases from sin, for which no longer in the desires of men, but in the will of Yahweh should he live the remaining time in the flesh. For enough of the time has passed, perpetuating the will of the heathens, having walked in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revelries, and lawless idolatries. While they are astonished, they blaspheme at your not running together in the same excess profligacy. While they, meaning those who love the world and follow its path, are astonished that Christians will not go along with them, they blaspheme Christians for not following them in their sin. So Christians are blasphemed for not accepting sodomites, fornicators who are race mixers, pornography 
or any other deviant behavior which the enemies of God, who were the Jews, have promoted throughout the world. So rejecting the sins of the world is tantamount to rejecting Satan, the Jews, and Christians invite persecution on themselves merely for that very reason. In Paul's time, his mission was to turn the pagans of Europe to Christ and to Christian morality. Those pagans were indeed engaging in all of the immorality promulgated by the Jews. As Livy often attests, Rome was in a constant struggle over usury, but also over all other sorts of immorality, as Tacitus himself had noted, where in his Germania he was commenting on the people of Germany, but was actually attesting to conditions in Rome, where he said that no one in Germany laughs at vice, meaning that the Romans were laughing at vice, nor do they call it the fashion to corrupt and to be corrupted. The moral conditions in the Rome of Tacitus were not much different than the moral conditions of the modern nations of the West just before the social revolutions of these recent decades. Once the Jews have come to dominate a society, one cannot uphold morality without enduring persecution. Paul continues to speak about the Jews of his own time. Preventing us, those who are contrary to all men, preventing us from speaking to the nations that they would be preserved for which to fill their errors at all times, but the wrath has come upon them at last. Now that phrase, at last, in the Christogenian New Testament, is from the Greek words, aistelos, for which the King James Version has, to the uttermost. Liddell and Scott explain the adverbial use of the word telos, and the very use of this phrase, aistelos, to mean, at last, in their definition of the word. The wrath has come upon them at last, meaning that the wrath of God had come upon the Judeans. In Romans chapter 16, Paul had told his readers that the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Those words were written about eight years after this epistle in 57 AD. However, tensions between the Judeans and the Romans had been increasing from the time of Caligula and continued to build in the reign of Claudius. As we have seen, Paul is in Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila, who were among those Judeans that were expelled from Rome on account of the troubles which the Jews were agitating against the Christians. Paul must have understood as it is prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, that Jerusalem was to be destroyed, since only in that manner could he have said what he had said to the Romans. 
Here he also seems to be indicating that the destruction of Jerusalem was imminent and that perhaps the Romans would turn against the Jews. There were other incidents which Josephus records which, in which Claudius was quite disgusted with the Judeans and the influence which Herod had with Claudius and especially with the wife of Claudius had been able to turn away his wrath from the Judeans and influence his favor. So the Jews were always at it behind the scenes in the first century as well as today and all through history. Here Paul attests that the Judeans were also preventing us from speaking to the nations that they would be preserved. As we have seen it explained so many times in Paul's epistles, in accordance with the Old Testament prophets, the entire purpose of the gospel was to reconcile the long alienated children of Israel with Yahweh their God through Christ. But the mere act of bringing the gospel of Christ to the nations of Europe provoked the Jews to violence. They hated Christ, but they hated the spread of Christianity just as much. Luke records this in Acts chapter 22, where Paul, upon his arrest, attempted to speak to the Judeans who were causing him trouble at the temple in Jerusalem. Doing this, Paul said of his purpose that he was told to go because I shall send you off to distant nations. Well, the Jews should have been glad to get rid of him if they hated Christ. Their hatred is much deeper than that. There are other things going on here. Luke records, Now they listened until this word and raised their voice, saying, Take such as him from the earth. For it is not fit that he lives. So the Jews wanted to kill Paul just because he was going to bring this gospel to distant nations. So as soon as Paul intended on taking the gospel to lost Israel, the Jews knew who they were. They knew who the Israelites of the ancient dispersions were. It was roughly estimated where they had gone. Flavius Josephus in his history said that the so-called ten tribes of the Israelites were beyond Euphrates and that they were an innumerable multitude. And when you look beyond Euphrates at this time, the only innumerable multitude you find is of the Massagetae, the Goths, the Alans, the Parthians, and all of the demonstrably related tribes that later produced the German people, the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, the Suebi, the Vandals, and all of their relations, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, we could carry on. As soon as Paul intended on taking the gospel to lost Israel, 
the Jews wanted to kill him. Speaking of this very situation, Paul had said in Acts chapter 26, And now for the hope of the promise having been made by God to our fathers, I stand being judged, for which our twelve tribes, serving in earnest night and day, hope to attain, concerning which hope I am charged by the Judeans, because they hated him, taking the words of a man that he despised and bringing them to these people, to these neo-pagans. They're cucks for the Jews. They are whores for the Jews. Anyone who prevents the spread or who seeks to deter or who mocks or scoffs at the spread of our racial Christian identity message is either a Jew or a whore for Jews. Cucks doing the work of Satan. The preservation, or as the King James Version has it, salvation, of which Paul speaks in this passage, has nothing to do with eternal life, but rather has to do with preservation in this world. The pagan nations forsaking immorality and returning to the laws of Yahweh their God would be preserved. It's the recipe for life. But those nations who reject Christ are led away by the Jews into immorality and decadence, just like these formerly Christian nations of today had been led away by the Jews into immorality and decadence. And eventually, they are destroyed. This is the ultimate purpose of the Gospel of Christ. To preserve the creation of God in the face of all those who wish to forever corrupt that creation. And any honest look at the history of our race proves this interpretation to be true. The Jews were having a party in Europe before Rome finally accepted Christianity. And even though they accepted a corrupted version of it. And Christian kings and emperors ostracized the Jew. Then the Jews immediately organized the Arab and Turkic hordes under Islam in order to strike back at Christendom. And they only continued because Christians would not unite against them. The continued attempts failed to destroy Europe until recent centuries when the Jews were finally able to buy up and corrupt sufficient of the rulers and clergy so that they could undermine Christendom. And that is where we are today, the whore which is joined to the beast. Those white Christians who join themselves to Jewry for the sake of their bellies. The true gospel of Christ the keeping of the moral and natural laws of God in concert for a love with a love for one's brethren is the only way to life.
all those opposed to this gospel, all those opposed to Christ, are therefore only pawns for the devil, the Jews who slew Christ. Getting back to Paul, he expresses his common affinity for the Christians in Thessalonica who had been suffering at the hands of those same Jews. But we, brethren, having been bereaved of you for a measure of time in person, not in heart, more abundantly with much longing, have been eager to see your presence. Once the racial identity is awakened with the Christian mind, the need for fellowship with one's like-minded brethren becomes an aching desire. And Paul says, Because we have wished to come to you. Indeed, I, Paul, both once and again, literally once and twice, has the adversary hindered us, or as the King James Version has it, has Satan hindered us. Paul's not talking about some mystical spirit being. The adversary, or Satan, is not some spiritual demon. It was not some demonic spirit that forced Paul to depart from Thessalonica. Luke didn't write a word about demonic spirits. Nor was it some demonic spirit that pursued Paul to Beroea, forcing him to depart from Macedonia and move on to Athens and then to Corinth, and thereby preventing him from seeing these Thessalonians once again. It wasn't demons, it wasn't spirits, it was Jews. And using the word Satan here, or the adversary as we have it, Paul was referring to Jews. In Paul's mind, as we have also seen from Romans chapter 16, the Jews are Satan. But of course... We should not limit the concept of Satan to Jews, as any corruption of God's creation is also satanic. Paul concludes, Therefore, what is our expectation, or joy, or crown of boasting, or are you not also before our Prince Yahshua at his presence? Indeed, you are our honor and joy. Even if Paul could not see the Thessalonians again, he had a reward in the fact that they remained in the obedience of the gospel of Christ, that they would be preserved for that reason from the wrath of God, which would ultimately come upon the world for its sins. We maintain our morality. We separate ourselves from the sinners of the world, from the pagan cucks whose girlfriends date niggers on the side and all of the other things I've seen of some of our white nationalist heroes who are really just immoral bastards with big mouths. We separate from those people. We separate from the sinners, the homosexuals that most of the secular white nationalists actually enable and befriend 
We separate ourselves from the sinners. We follow the basic and natural laws of our God. We separate ourselves from the niggers that certain white nationalists have taken photos with and posted on our Facebook accounts. We separate ourselves from the beasts, from the Jews, unlike clowns like Ramsey Paul and David Duke and Jared Taylor who embrace any Jew that sings the right song. We separate ourselves from all of them and we pray and we could practically expect that we will not suffer the wrath of God which is going to come upon these people who don't separate themselves and who have forsaken Christ. The trials which we see in anguish which we see much of our race suffer today. And the white nationalists, they all want to have their own solutions. They all want to be the next Hitler. They're all a joke. They're keyboard jockeys. There are no more Hitlers. Forget it. Return to Christ and the natural laws of our God. Separate yourself from the sin. That is the only path to preservation. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.